0: So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Geld actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, MAs, restricted stocks, various investments, and more, you can keep your hard-earned money our their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster so again you know if you're interested on in this go to joingelt.com uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy so again you know join Geld.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So we have today a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, exiting. I mean, he's done it all. And now he's building a rocket ship that is already valid at $2.5 billion plus valuation. So again, really, really inspiring founder today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matthias Jelmstedt. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Originally born and raised in Stockholm. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there?
1: Well, I mean, Sweden back in the days was a fantastic place to grow up You have great schools. Uh, you had great security in Sweden. Uh, you know, good support system. Uh, one of the first countries that said that uh, internet and computers should be uh, for everyone. So already in the 90s, uh, a big part of Sweden's. Subsidies—they they actually subsidized uh, uh, computers to all homes, so it was really one of the first countries in the world that really got internet penetration, computers, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why Sweden has been so, you know, in the front when it comes to creating uh, massive successes on the on on the internet side. So, I would say it's a great place to grow up in. You have sports, you you have everything. Uh, so, yeah. I would call that a happy place to to grow up.
0: And how how did you get into you know? Uh, oh, I guess obviously you know you said that it was like a really big movement you know pushed by government. But I guess how old were you when you started to really experience and seeing how cool it was the the internet and what was coming?
1: Yeah, so I've always been a computer geek. So I, I think I my 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 parents bought us the first computer when I was about six. So I guess I'm the first generation that grew up with a computer in in my lab. Uh, So we saw that. And then you had all of the BBS things happening in the 80s. And already there, you could see that everything that can be digitalized will be digitalized and would be distributed that way. So we saw that already in the 80s. So I've been part of that movement since the start. And then I commercially started to work with it around 94, which I think is one year after Mozilla became graphical uh, and, uh, you know, started to build and, and even create protocols to be able to get out on the internet faster with connections and such. So really from the start of the whole kind of internet movement.
0: So obviously you built uh, multiple companies. So I'd like to spend more time on the latest one that you have, which is a uh, Smashing Success. So, I guess um, you know what I like to get is more the lessons learned on the previous one. Let's start with the first one electronic sports network. What were you guys doing there, and then also what ended up happening
1: so it it really was created out of uh, the need of creating systems and 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 technologies around a sport, so to speak because. Uh, I started to play Quake really early. I was really good at the game. I won a lot of tournaments uh, and uh, we saw that there was a lack of of structures because I come from another athletic background before I did swimming in Taekwondo on on, on high level. And uh, we saw that it wasn't organized. So we actually started to organize tournaments. We did some of the first events with prize money in the world uh, in the 90s uh i think in 97 we did the first event that was ever streamed from in game to other clients uh which is kind of the whole world does today right the whole world on gaming is about and if you look at youtube you have some of the largest accounts it's just about streaming and talking about gaming and and we did the first event ever with which was streamed fully from from in game uh, at night seven, and we saw that the interest was so high and uh, there was not much organized, so we set out to do that. And for doing that, we needed to create platforms that could make it automized because otherwise, you can't have millions of gamers. We actually created a site called So Game, which was the first real um, social network for gamers in the world, uh, millions of users back in the early 2000s. And we saw that if we could make games social, uh, which esports is you stopped piracy because you would have to log in to uh, to the games to play online, and, and when you played with each other, um, uh, it became uh, you know you took the longevity from a game from three weeks, which was a kind of hype cycle, to many years. I mean, Counter Strike is still around and was launched in the '90s. Uh, so uh, what, what happened with esports is it massively uh, adapted and created a whole new industry around the games and and we were the first ones really creating massive platforms and events and and systems around it we even created the swedish Esport league and leagues in all of the other territories which was the first major leagues played out of physical locations and um, that worked out pretty well i think about 60 70 percent of all online gaming esports related gaming in in northern europe was on the platforms Um, and at the end i think around 2013 the games and the subsidiary DICE acquired the company. And uh, it's super fun because it's still the basis of their platforms. It's called the Battlelog, if you are familiar with the games. So if you play uh, uh, Battlefield or Star Wars games, etc., you will log in through the Battlelog. It will be every game start. It will be every statistic. It will be even every second screen interaction that you have. So it's pretty cool to see your tech 25 years later still uh, in the center of of an industry uh, for some of the biggest things. So.
0: No kidding. And also it was the uh, first company, first uh, exit, no? So how, how did it feel to um, go through the full cycle of a business, you know, from building it to scaling it to then all of a sudden you go through the acquisition? Well, how did that acquisition process, you know, uh, look like for you guys? And and how did that visibility, how was that visibility into the full cycle too?
1: Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to, to that company on the exit side, um, I had, had of help. the actual CEO of that company that, that was running it for us uh, was instrumental in that work. And and of course, I mean, I think one of the things that people think is that when you've sold a company, uh, you go out and party. Uh, but the actual thing that happens in general, and I've sold a couple of companies now, I invest in a couple of companies that also was sold. Uh, The usual effect afterwards when you put your life into something is that you just are kind of blank for a week. (laughs) It's kind of a vacuum that is created. It's not kind of a euphoria that comes a little bit later. Uh, And for me, I've always been very entrepreneurial. So once something has been sold, there's been a short break and then it's more about what do I do now? And then you start something new. Uh, So for me, it was never about making exits or or earning money in, in companies. It was always about the passion of creating something uh, where you saw impacts in many people's lives, made something better, um, took something that was a passion for me back in the days, computer games, and organized it and 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 uh, was part of of creating kind of the back end of an esport industry.
0: One thing here very interesting, you know, that you say, is is the passion. You know how the passion. Feels things, you know. There's so many people that are not able to find their passion. I think that uh, one thing in life, right, and and then they end up miserable, just you know, pushing paper behind, you know, this nine to five, and not excited about what they're doing. I guess in your case, you know, it sounds like for every company that you've done, you've been able to tune into yourself, to tune into whatever was moving you, whatever you know you were passionate about and excited about, where you had a deep interest, and then. You were able to monetize, you know, and convert that into a business. How does that process of building a company around your passion, how do you tune in into your passion and, and really listen to get there?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when you look back at the first company, uh, I can't take any large credit other than I turned a passion into a business because I really like, liked to do it. and I wanted it to be better. <laughs> So it was really created out of wanting uh, something to work so I could have more fun with it myself. So that was really the reason why it was started. Uh, after that, uh, I've been way more methodical uh, and, and done a lot of zooming out work uh, because, for instance, I always had a passion of movies. I always had a passion in all of the things, uh, television, rights, uh, life. And I always had a massive passion in music, which is what I work with now. Uh, And uh, when it came to, for instance, the first thing that we started to do, which was uh, video, so the company that we created was more than than Netflix before Netflix in Europe, it really came out of a problem uh, that it was very, very hard to uh, uh, be able to actually consume the things you wanted to. Uh, So it was hard. You have to go and rent movies or buy movies, and you couldn't just sit at home and get whatever you wanted when you were home, right? You still had to make an issue around it, which created piracy, right? You had piracy around music, uh, you had piracy around movies, and it all came from accessibility. Uh, How is it? Is it hard to access something? You find a way to access it easier. And this is in many ways where piracy came from. And uh, I I really saw, and it came from from an issue of, of seeing that it just is very, very hard Consume movies in an easy way and get access to all of them because even if you go to a store back in the 2000s, something, there was a lot of movies missing uh, because you had windowing, right? You had movies coming to the movies, went to DVD, second DVD window, then it went to pay TV, free TV, and then it went out to the ether somewhere and it was hard to access those movies. So it was kind of a library problem as well to be able to want to see what you want to see. So we actually took a lot of time there, spent a lot of time of actually looking at the industry. Why is it like this? What are the different players doing? Why were they formed? What are driving them? And when you understand uh, the industry, it's much easier to understand what you could do with the industry, because you need to learn to align to where the money in an industry is. And this is kind of a learning I've seen so many entrepreneurs fail at over the years because they come up with this great idea uh, that on paper looks amazing. Uh, everybody should agree to that idea on paper, but you have failed to actually understand what drives the money into the industry first, and the players that will block you from coming in. And if you understand that first, you will much easier understand how to apply it. So this is, this is really what... What I did with passion, I took the passion, looked at all of the problems to be able to actually consume it the right way, did a lot of research because it was just not me that had the issue. And then actually seeing where is all of the money flowing, why is the decisions made and happening like they do, and how do you actually make the lives easier and better for the ones that is actually producing movies and uh, and at the end creating more windows for them to consume them through. To, to, to end consumers, uh, uh, which actually brings the movies out. So it, it really came from being very methodical about it uh, over time. And the same goes for the other two companies I created. They were really created to fix large issues in industries without really destroying the industries rather enhancing them.
0: Now, in this case, you know, for, for this one, for Butler, something that you really understood was being in control, being in control of your own destiny, of the future. As an entrepreneur, tell us about this. Why is this so
1: important? So one of the things I've learned really as an entrepreneur is that when you, you know, when you're young as an entrepreneur, you focus on building. You see the problem, uh, you are kind of naive about it. I want to fix it. Uh, My first company was very successful. Uh, so you want to start building. We had great success in the company. We had 10% of Sweden signing up for the service within a week of the launch. It was super hyped. Um, But I did not mind really all of the things around board composition, how does politics flow, how is decisions really made, uh, how do you work with investors, what are the veto rights and, 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 and rights that you sign on when you do investment rounds, etc. And all of that always ends up hurting you at the end uh, if you don't think about it. Uh, because you need to be very wary about what is the kind of, kind of control mechanism around the company. Because at the end, your possibility to operate as an entrepreneur is always related to what you agreed on to get there. Uh, and I can promise everyone that listens to this that it's worth the extra time and effort. To drive that negotiation to the end, and not just be happy with it because you're stressed, uh, because it will always bite you in the ass. When you get a veto right for a liquidity preference, it can be used to actually uh, stop you from some votes in the board, which you know gets the company to where it should be. You have to say no to another investor because another investor had a veto right. Uh, you uh, lose control over uh, kind of how the board decides, and they start. Interacting with each other for what they think is the best for the company instead of the driving uh, vision of the company, which usually always ends up in failure. Uh, so, I think the biggest experience there is to be diligent. Uh, I think when it comes to how agreements look like, what investors and what uh, people do you bring into the cap table, and how do you actually compose the board so it works for the company first and per se. If you look in the whole world, the company structure was created in a way where we have shareholders that votes a board that puts management in place, and you have a reporting line that operates that way. Uh, and in many cases in the VC world, it doesn't, uh, because uh, boards are you know, hamstringed by, by agreements. Uh, part of the board is set there to govern for one shareholder, not all of the shareholders. And then you kind of destroy the kind of idea of, of how the structure was set out to be for corporate governance because it, it benefits some instead of all. And and I, I've seen very few cases where this really works out outside for the ones that uh, wants to protect themselves uh, in this in, in the system, but it seldom, you know, gives you great companies. So that's a big, big, big learning. Uh, I have to say.
0: No kidding, no kidding. Now, obviously, uh, one what what happened basically is you guys ended up selling to to investors your position, and you ended up you know turning into a new chapter, and that chapter was Magin. So, real quick here, what what is Magin? because it's still around, and yeah. uh, what was the lesson that you took away from your experience with Magin?
1: So, Margin, I think, uh, and still is kind of a. Uh, 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 a great idea and concept and and, and company. Because again, when you looked at the world of streaming and how you consume, uh, today it sounds commonplace that you can just watch live TV anywhere. And you can go back in time from it, you can pause it, and you can have a lot of apps for different things if you want to watch tennis or whatever. If you go back to uh, early 2010 or so, Nothing of that existed. You could literally watch television on the wall uh, through a box. Uh, and, uh, you know, it kind of dictated people's lives, to be honest. If you were to go back and then you saw there was the idol coming up on Fridays, families kind of even planned their whole time around it. So you have to be at eight at home to be able to view it together. You have to have eaten, etc. So it kind of dictated your time. And uh, one smart person once said that in the copyable future, because in the future, everything will be copied, uh, and even more so in the AI world, because AI is all about copying, to be honest, it's learning from something that's already happening and making it into something new. Um, the only thing you can ever copy is time, uh, because time is always going to be essential for people. And TV was one of those things that was really hampered by time, because it was a live signal, and if you missed it, you missed it. Uh, if you didn't remember to put your p v r on the recording. Uh, so it was kind of the largest media industry in the world, which had uh, almost the whole world tuning in, uh, was hampered by time. And Maddie was really created around that. What can we do to remove that constraint? Make television available on any device at any time? So we actually invented a lot of technologies where we could literally record all TV worldwide uh, in the cloud and making it available at any time at any device uh, directly after signal. And we even did the first agreement that I know of together with, uh, I, I can't say it because I think it's still under NDA, but we did it with one, one of the largest TV groups in the world. And the first time it was licensed to go back in time over a cloud signal, we did in 2013. Which today is commonplace. Today you can do it everywhere, right? But we did that. We even streamed football before anyone. So we actually streamed the World Cup in football in Germany on that, on, on for instance. Which was great because um I don't know if everybody remembers World Cup 2014, but Germany won. Uh, and uh They won by quite a lot over Brazil, and it was in Brazil, the whole uh, event. And all games were played at 10 o'clock in the evening CET, Central European time. Except for the final, which was played at 9, which meant that we had millions of Germans tuning in late, because every single game was supposed to be at 10. And Manning was the only place they could go back in time and watch the football game from the beginning before it was ended. So... It, it was kind of those things that, that Maddie was created around. And we were the first company in the world that got all the different studios' approval to do broadcasts at and device. And the amount of work there to actually be able to do that is, is immense. You have to Work, diligently over time, clear rights, understand who sits behind rights, understand the politics around rights, and also understand how rights are in different territories, etc. So it was a lot of work to, to make that happen. Uh, but once it happened, it became magical. Because everybody that tried that the first time was like, do you mean I can just go back to the last program that was played and just play it instead of watching now? Yes, you can. Uh, and and that became a big shift and it's still around, as you said, it's it's gone from being a front-end company that did services for end consumers to being a back-end company where large players like, I think we can say Flix O'Lea, so I think even Elon Musk's sister's Flix run on it. So a lot of content providers in the world use that technology today.
0: Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you. And that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And you were talking about time earlier. I want to ask you something here when it comes to time, and that is work-like balance with family members. I mean, over the course of time, I know that you've seen, you know, stuff happening with co-founders, with employees. When family issues you know, would arise because maybe they were neglecting that side of the equation. Tell us about this.
1: Well, I think it's a very, very important factor. Uh, so why do you do things in general, right? When you're younger, you're doing it because you want to achieve something. When you're older, uh, you do things because you want to secure things for your family in, in general, right? And then people have a tendency to forget that. And I have never seen anything make more people stressed than when they have problems in their family life, Uh, when they start having neglections, uh, when they start having uh, disruptions, when they get fights, when they get divorced, when they have issues around the kids. Uh, So what happens there, and I've seen so many cases of it, we've had thousands of employees over the years, and every time we've seen where you get into these situations where. You get major issues with with, with family life. I've seen people that were the best in the world at what they did to become absolutely zombies, uh, you know, shells out of themselves uh, by just trying to run their business instead of actually taking care of everything around. So one of the big experiences that I have uh, with having so many employees, co-founders and partners is that I've seen very few being able to manage a good company and having a family crisis at the same time. It usually just yes, doesn't work. Uh, so when you actually get people to understand that family life work balance is actually what makes you work better, it's not about working 20 hours a day, it's about being effective around it so you also have times for other things because uh, what happens otherwise is that people get narrow minded. Uh, so. I think it's very easily forgotten, and and there's been a kind of an idolization in the world of of founders and and startups that the ones that work the most hours are the ones that are the most successful. And it's seldom so. Uh, Most of the people that are very successful usually have time to think, time to reflect, time to zoom out, time to actually operate the company from a larger perspective. And to be able to do so, you also have to be in balance, because if you're unbalanced, you're usually not a good operator. So I have to say, I've seen so many cases. I have numerous occasions where people that really was on top of the game that did some of the largest businesses I've ever seen that failed because of not taking care of their balance in their life.
0: That's so so important, eh, Matthias, and 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 I don't think that people talk about it enough. So um, thank you for for sharing that. Now, what was the transition of events? You know, from magic to the rocket ship that you're riding with Utopia Music. You know, multi unicorn um value valuation. What what were the sequences of events that needed to happen for you to bring Utopia to life?
1: I think. Um... It's always been kind of the background, right? Because for me, music has always been so important. My co-founder as well. And uh, it's kind of one of those factors for me that is so important for for humans. I've only met one person in my whole life that didn't have a great relationship with music. <laughs> kind of a little bit autistic, uh, great. He, he runs a very, very large company that everybody would know, uh, but I'm not gonna tell. Uh, but he thinks that music uh, disrupts his 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 sort patterns. Uh, outside of that, I've met very few people that doesn't have music as an important factor of the life. Uh, from the moods they're in to the music they grew up with, to the love uh, that to the music that they had when they met their loved ones, to music that is part of revolutions. Every revolution do have a song. Uh, to 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 love, to passion, to when you're sad, uh, and all of the things in between, is such an important factor of humanity. Uh, really, uh, I mean, even if you go if you would find one of those tribes that still exists somewhere in the world that doesn't interact with the rest of humanity, I can promise you they have music. Uh, so music has been such an important factor of of. of of the world and it, it, it changes people it, it it's even been proven that if you have Alzheimer's and you hear music from when you were young you start recollection things right it's, it's kind of a time machine if I played you a song that you haven't heard for twenty years but it was a, a song which, which was played when something big happened in your life, you would be transported back and all of the emotions and feelings would come back so it's such an important factor and then seeing how the industry was not helping it so the industry it's kind of archaic and old and 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 uh, kind of problematic and uh, not in a good way seeing to it that all of the good music comes out and the ones creating it actually can live for it, it It's kind of blocking itself and it comes from you know just inefficiencies uh, fragmentation and 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 all of these different problems in between we just had to go in and fix it. We just had to create a company that comes in and tries to make it more efficient so more music can come out and the ones that live from it could live from it better without having all of the hassle because that would lead to more music in the world. And for me, that makes the world better. Uh, so this is really the reason why we created Utopia. And One of the reasons when we saw that Maddie was starting to operate well, it had a CEO, a good board, etc. We just had to step out and do it.
0: And what ended up being the business model of Utopia Music? How do you guys make money?
1: So Utopia has a lot of business model because Utopia is kind of a large player in the music industry today. Uh, Because it's very easy to confuse uh, an industry with digitalization uh, because it's been such an important part of of music, for instance. Everybody listens to Spotify, etc. But it's still not all of the revenue. Actually, it's, it's not even half of the revenue of the music industry, because the industry is all about someone created music, someone listened to music, everything in between is the industry, <laughs> uh, and, and that comes from even buying a vinyl uh, to buy a CD to listen to music on, on, on radio, which four and a half billion people still do, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Going to a nightclub, to hearing music in the elevator, to consuming it through uh, Spotify, but also more and more asking an AI to play some specific type of music, right? So the music industry is all of that, and it has a tendency to try to forget it. And it's been very bad at, at enabling new monetization ways of the industry and instead of trying to block them the so music industry should be the biggest industry of the, of the media industries, but it's the smallest. Uh, and it's, it's because of it's been so focused on where it is instead of where to go. And uh, uh, that means that when you work with it, you have to segment yourself. Uh, because the industry segments itself to what are you? Are you a publishing platform? Are you an administration part? Are you a recording uh, studio? Are you a delivery platform? Are you a uh, consumer-fronting platform? Are you a collecting agency, etc.? And that then fragments you up into different territories again, because every territory does its own way. But it's governed by the strongest kind of asset-backed legal framework that exists, which is the copyright laws, which is kind of worldwide, and every country in the world more or less have have signed on to the treaties. So what does Utopia do? Well, at the first case, as I said, it's about who owns or created music, and at the second stage is who listened to it. Uh, And Utopia is by far the best in that. We have seen to it that we know who owns, because there is no central register in it. And we actually track all of the global usage of music so it actually can be paid correctly. Uh, and the rest is processing of having, you know, of handling that so money can actually flow in the system faster and better. And by doing so, we have to interface in different parts of the industry. So we do everything from actual distribution of music, we even uh, do about 98% of all deliveries of physical vinyls in UK, for instance. So in UK, every single CD or record you would buy has been delivered by Utopia, um, because it's such an important asset actually, and it's the fastest growing revenue in the music industry. People don't know that, but 30%, 33% year to year growth on vinyl, um, and it's driven by younger population. So post COVID. Uh, it has been more important to actually have physical things and not just digital things anymore, because you were kind of locked away. So you kind of see a revival in 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 things. Everything has been going digital for many years, and now it's going you know back a bit to you know getting other things important. So Utopia does that. Uh, we do with the actual collection and and distribution of money. We even have uh, uh, advances. So when and this is going to sound insane, but if you're uh, and for instance, an American artist, and you were played on radio in Germany. Uh, it can take two years for you to get paid. Uh, and even if if you're a songwriter and you uploaded your music uh, through a distribution platform to Spotify, your music was played on Spotify. The average payout time through the system is nine months. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of, of legacy in there, and you lose a lot of money in the way. We can even. So we can recognize the play, and we can actually advance the money to to the players. So you can get the money tomorrow instead of waiting uh, uh, for years to get the capital. Which means that you're again, you control of your destiny. You, instead of selling your assets, you can actually have them, grow them, and work with them. Uh, so we we work on, on many of those different things. We enable different players uh, with technologies. So we do it for other players that use our technologies to do so instead of trying to be the one. And the long-term model of utopia is really if someone collects money, it should go through the system so it goes faster and will enable anyone to do so. So we work with actual societies in the different territories to upgrade them and and make them modern. So literally, it's almost like an operating system for an industry to see to it that is efficient, which again saves time. Because it's exactly what it does. And when you say time, you can actually spend more of that time to create more music to do that more music comes out and people can listen to more music, which is beneficial for the whole industry.
0: I love it. Now, how did you guys go about the financing tool for this company? Because I mean, incredible how, you know, the value has skyrocketed to two point five billion plus, you know, the last financing that you guys did. So up until now, how much capital have you guys raised to date? And how was that journey of going through those cycles?
1: Since we've on purpose not officially announced how much we've raised, it's a lot, but I'm not going to officially say so. But uh, we've managed to actually be able to finance part of it ourselves as we've actually done exits before. And I think that's the benefit of being able to operate the companies we've had. Uh, And uh, we kind of got into a little bit of this uh, hyper-growth scenario because the last 20 years, and especially the last 10, has been Extremely focused on hyper-growth. So if you take a lot of the large companies that exist today, they went through these hyper-growth scenarios, which massively increased the, uh, the value of them. Not always from a profitability standpoint, not always from a revenue standpoint, just being able to capture market by growth. Uh, uh, this has been how the world of, 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 uh, of financing has looked the last 20 years. And uh, a year ago, that all came to stop. So now every company needs to look at sustainability and profitability. And if you're still one of the growth companies, you're not getting capital period. Uh, so we've seen a wake of, of, of companies that are failing because of it. You've even seen banks being disrupted by it. Um, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. Uh, so experience-wise, uh, we went through that hyper-growth. We went from 40 to 1,100 people. We recruited a team that was specialized in it come from some of the largest gross companies in the world. Uh, And that worked fantastically well up until uh, the world didn't reward it anymore. And we were able to raise capital uh, every single time at high multiples. And we were also able to uh, get oversubscribed every round we did. So we were in the fortunate situation of being able to control the life and the destiny of the company which led to all board members actually being selected board members, only have one share class, et cetera, which means that the value is the same for all shareholders. Uh, and all of this has been very diligent work, and you could have done it easier, but by doing so, we've been in control of the company. Um, but I have to say the the last year has been a very interesting year. I've been operating from the board, so we recruited a, a global CEO, and... Uh, uh, I will see to it that we take care of how we work with investors and boards and all of the different things to make the company be able to operate. And in January this year, I was asked by the board to step in as a CEO. So I, I stepped back in and then I've been optimizing and, and uh, the company. And it's one of the biggest experiences I've had in my life of, of uh, having to See to it that everything that was in hypergrowth, which literally means if something burns in the corner, you just leave it alone. Because if you try to to turn out that fire, you're not moving fast enough. To actually see to that every fire is turned out. Because that's the only way to be sustainable over time and and, and run your company versus profitability. So we've gone through the the life cycles that I think you see in the world of, of, of technology today. We've had to downsize. We've had to look at operations. How many offices do we have? What is the cost? How do we operate? How do we have cost controls? How we have controls of the development cycles, go to market, all this. So, in in about six months, we've been able to lower our burn with about seventy five percent, and we're wow. still increasing our revenue this year with about eighty uh, percent. So, uh, it's, it's an interesting story. But you know, doing that and doing that kind of restructuring also requires money, and that's been you know. Not the easiest thing to do, even for us, uh, you know, uh, unicorn level company, we, we have the same problem. And that's why you see the likes of Klarna losing 85, 90% of their valuation, uh, because at the end, there's always an equation uh, of, of valuation versus uh trade through a company. But it's, it's a very interesting uh, experience to look at how do you take all the decisions, uh, because uh, we set out to be one of the companies that do take the decisions. And that's it too, that you do all of the things you need. Um, and uh, as I said, it's not easy. Uh, I mean, we created a company with very high human values. You can't name yourself Utopia without it. And then actually having to let go people that are you know, there for the vision uh, to be able to get there. It's It's been a you know, tough but interesting uh Uh, you know, journey, but also kind of a sad one because there's been so many great people. But at the end, the vision of making the world of music better is too important to not take all the decisions to get there. And I think one of the learnings I've had in all of my companies is that the ones who succeed are the ones who decide. Uh, If you are thinking something will fix itself, if you hope something will go away, if you Think that if we just do this a little bit more, things will happen. I think the most and biggest uh, experience and and uh, advice I can give to everyone: uh, take adv- take take decisions, uh, operate, uh, don't hesitate, uh, go forward uh, always, because that's what make a company successful. And when it, when we talk about valuations, one of the best. Uh, uh, anecdotes or kind of, uh, not anecdote really, but the best uh, kind of quote I've ever heard is the evaluation of a company is usually equal to the amount of problems you solved to get. Them. And I think that's the life of an entrepreneur.
0: Got it. I mean, unbelievable. The um, the lessons learned, you know, throughout your journey and, and and also what you guys are doing. I mean, I agree as well that in the end, too, you know, like those cycles, you know, they end up making companies much stronger, too, no? because they, they, they help you to really take a look at things. So I'm sure that there's a ton of people right now that are super inspired and that are wondering, hey, what is the best way for me to reach out to Matthias and say hi? What is the best way for them to do so?
1: Well, I think in general, uh, just ping me on LinkedIn.
0: Amazing. Well, is he well, enough? Well, Matias, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today with us. It has, it has been an honor to have you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. If you
0: like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts,